Hi, this is Areej Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Kamasi Washington probably needs no introduction on this show. Like I said, he's on heavy rotation on the rap, but I will do it nonetheless. He is a jazz saxophonist and has worked with some of the greatest, like Herbie Hancock, Kendrick Lamar, Snoop Dogg, and now the one and only Michelle Obama, forever first lady Michelle Obama. Let's get stuck right into it. Are you in LA at the moment in California? Yeah, yeah, I'm in Los Angeles, yeah, yeah. And is it mad lockdown? Supposedly. <laughs> I don't know how, how, how much people are really adhering to it, but yeah, 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 yeah. It's supposed to be lockdown. Yeah. Is it, um, has this been like the longest time you've spent not performing with a group of people, with a band, since, yeah, you know, in yeah, the last few years? Yeah, without playing music with other people. Yeah, I, I got I to admit it, it it's, it's definitely... I miss it, you know. Um, it's uh, you know, it's, since I've been playing music, it's been the biggest thing in my life, you know. And so, it's to just kind of have it abruptly, just kind of go away like that is kind of it's 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 starting to wear on pretty much every musician I know. We all kind of feel the same way. We just miss going out and playing. How are you spending your time? I've been doing a lot of writing. Um, pretty much watched all the movies <laughs> that I like. <laughs> um, um, so I've been doing a lot of like music writing and like kind of like fictional writing, like uh, creative writing. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, you know, helping family and you know, occasional, you know, barbecue <laughs> at the house. In the last little while you wrote and performed the score for um, Becoming the Michelle Obama documentary with your band. I'm just curious to know how it works um, with scoring a film. What are you sent? What kind of instructions are you given? Do you get just like a quiet version of the documentary? Um, no, no. I mean, so for this, I, I you know, I saw a rough cut and it had um, basically like, like temp music that the director kind of like put in there. And then you get instructions basically of just like what the emotion, what, what the scene is supposed to mean and and what what the the director is looking, how the director is, is, is wants the music to kind of frame what, what the person, what, what the audiences will be seeing. Cause that to me, that's kind of like the purpose of music and film is kind of to frame the picture. The picture that you will be feeling and thinking and that's what's really communicating to you and the music kind of just puts that frame around it to kind of like um I don't know it's almost like a yeah like a table that you set <laughs> your your meal on <laughs> yeah I um was chatting with a friend yesterday about film scores and uh, we were both talking about the fact that, you know, if you remember a film score and if you go back and listen to it or you buy it or whatever, um, it feels like a, a different experience of watching 
a film and I remember watching If Bill Street Could Talk and Moonlight and going back and listening to those scores specifically just in the last yeah. in the last few years. And they're, yeah, they're really, you know, they're the table and they're emotive and they're a frame, but they're also very central to like how we experience and how we feel emotionally connected to films. Yeah, I feel like the the this the sense of sound is is connected the most, I think, to your subconscious, you know, um, and your emotions, I think, are most affected by your subconscious as well, or your subconscious is most affected by your emotions. So I think music, whenever you watch a film, it, it does, it does kind of like, it, it, if it's done well, it flows with what the picture is doing. And it's like, it's like the boat that allows you to ride the current of the of the river, you know? Mm. And so, yeah, it's definitely, I have the same kind of experience. Like you hear a song from a, from a score and it, it just kind of takes you back to that place, you know? Completely. And you see the imagery of the film as well. So it's like, especially, you know, emotive and evocative to your senses as a person. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's powerful. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've like, I have the same experience. I, I listen to a lot of scores and, 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 and music for film just because of that, you know, it just, it just kind of transports me. It allows my like that kind of visual side of my, of my conscious and subconscious to kind of just open up. Like, so yeah, I have the same, same experience. Kamazi, how do you create a score that sits alongside the profound life of Michelle Obama? <laughs> how do we, how do we even think in that way? You know, I, I, that was a big thing for me. I had to try. I had to try to think because it's so personal. The film is so personal. It's so much her life. You know, I was like really trying to like, you know, tap into my inner Michelle Obama. So I like, honestly, I, I started like looking up some of her playlists <laughs> and just trying to figure out like what music does she really like. You know, which really allowed me to like, kind of approach the scenes you know, almost from, from the inside out, you know, mm. you know, so I, I, I took some time and really tried to just kind of get a musical palette in my head that felt like it was what she listened to, you know? And, and I think that like, because it's such a reflection of her life in music, I feel like it shapes you over the course of your life. Like the music that you listen to, the songs that you look at and you go like, Oh, that's my song. Those, that energy, those ideas, they, they, they have a profound effect on you. So you know, kind of, kind of taking that step, try to kind of understand musically what, what is her taste. You know, really helped me to like understand each scene and understand like what would be the appropriate like frame or table or palette or sound for each each one of them. Mm. How much direct feedback did you get from our former or your former president? <laughs> And you know, like, it was always filtered. You know, I mean, I mean, the reality is that like film is, is such a it's such a collaborative thing that by the time it got to me, it had been handed off. To, I feel like several people, so <laughs> it was always you know given. You know, I, I never I never got to like it was never like one to one. Mm. It was a, I mean, work, working with Anadi, the director, was amazing, and and so and I really do had I had confidence that she had. She understood the vision that, uh, that Michelle Obama wanted to have for the film. So it was like, I could just basically take Nadia's word as being 
directly associated with um, Miss Obama. So one of the songs that you uh, created for this score is called Provocation and it plays when Michelle Obama is talking in the documentary about this um, overwhelming experience of being um, criticised just based on who she is as a black woman in the US and as someone who is in the public eye. And as I was watching it and as I was listening to it, all I could think about was this case that's just come out of Ahmad Arbery and, and like the countless black people in the US and in Australia and the UK and around the world who um, whose visibility is something that, and physicality and the way, you know, we look is something that impacts their lives in such an intense way and watching that and Michelle Obama going through that and remembering some of the rhetoric as well from the news. You know, I was super young, but I remember seeing how people were treating her, even in Australia. How do you write music that speaks to that? How do you write music that speaks to such an intense and overwhelming experience? For me, it's, you know, I tap into my own experience with that, you know. Um, So, I mean, some of the things... I learned a lot about her life and, and I learned about, about the experiences that she went through, but I also had a connection to a lot of those experiences. And I, I also understood with that, in particular provocation, that that notion that, um, well, in her case, I mean, in that scene, she was really talking about how the mere fact that herself and Barack Obama were in the White House and because of the color of their skin, that could stir up feelings of so much darkness and evil and hatred that people will go out and commit violence against other people that just happen to look like them, you know, and that. But that notion of, of, of the way that I look being enough to bring someone to a place where they would, you know, potentially murder me. Is something that like, and even, you know, people that were meant to protect us, you know, you know, I mean, all of a sudden, you know, you know, you're, you're 10 years old and you realize that police officers who were, you know, supposed to be there to protect you have all these ill feelings towards you just because of the way you look, you know, and um, it's, it's, uh, so to create music, to understand that it's a complicated thought to have. You know, because there's the the anger that you feel for it. There's the sadness that you feel for the people that you've lost. There's the fear that you feel that you may lose your own life at some point for no reason at all. Um, there's the frustration at the sheer just madness of that notion. Like you know, I always tell people like try to imagine. You know, I'll, I'll tell a person that maybe maybe isn't that tall. I'll say, imagine if they were like, the police just came to a decision that you know people that were under under six feet tall are dangerous, mm-hmm. <laughs> and because of that, if they see you and you're under six feet tall, maybe they can kill you. If you're under six feet tall, you'd be like, whoa, whoa, this is crazy. You can't just make that association. You know, you can't just do that. Like, you can't just come to that conclusion. That's that's madness. You know. Color of my skin has nothing to do with whether or not I'm, I'm dangerous to you or not. And uh, and if you can't understand that, you shouldn't have that power. You shouldn't be in that position. Um, 
But yeah, so so when I was writing provocation, it was just I was kind of trying to tap into that. I was trying to tap into the complexity of the, what the mindset of someone that has to realize that is doing. So I was trying to use a lot of contrapuntal movement within that kind of that drone that is kind of the through line of which is just like kind of the madness, you know, it's like a madness. And then there's all these thoughts and all these feelings and all these emotions that glide through it. But no matter how many thoughts, I mean, how many, how, how well you think you can analyze it and understand it, it's still insanity, you know? It's, yeah, being able to articulate and create music that speaks to such an intense and layered experience is, um, it's something that jazz has has done. A lot of musicians have done for a long time. The first thing that I thought about when I listened to that part of the documentary or watched that part of the documentary and heard Provocation was the instant emotive experience that I have when I listen to Alabama by John Coltrane and the instant yeah. kind of just moment of experiencing that in like a visceral way that you have in in that moment, it takes you straight to the, you know, the feeling of what this artist was thinking and what was going on. And yeah, yeah, I mean, because I mean, you think about what that song is about is, you know, one blew up a church and killed children in a church because of the complexion of their skin. I mean, like, that's so so hard to fathom. You know, I couldn't fathom. Couldn't fathom killing children for any reason, none. I can't think of one reason, let alone because of the complexion of their skin. Right. You know, and so to think that someone would do that and to do it in the church, or even even more so, it's like it's, it's, it's hard to imagine what level of evil and insanity you have to have going on in your head to commit something to do something like that. Um, for a lot of people, Kamasi, possibly even a whole generation of people, myself included, um, I feel like your music has become like a reintroduction to jazz. For me, I'm, I'm Eritrean, so I listen to lots of, grew up listening to Ethiopian jazz, the Mahmoud Ahmed, the, yeah, Mulak Tuastatke, all of them. But this kind of reintroduction to jazz came from listening to your music and, and sitting in the car and, you know, you know, bumping Kendrick, Beyonce, and then Kamazi all in the same playlist, really loud, you know, in this kind of like hype, hype way. Do you feel a sense of responsibility or is there a sense of responsibility for you um, to jazz and its, and its legacy for people that you carry at this moment in this present day? Um, I mean, I think that, you know, uh, I, I guess... No, I don't feel I don't feel sensitive. Because I feel like, you know, jazz is just a word. Right. It's a word to use to organize all the music that's happening in the world. You know, jazz, hip hop, rock and roll, R and B, all these are just words that we use to help organize all this music. But the reality is that music is a self expression, you know. And so like I don't feel that, you know, I mean I, I represent myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've grown up listening to to so many of the great musicians of history. You know, people like Mulatu and John Coltrane, Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, and they, their music meant so much to me. Um, but I would never, I would never entertain the thought that somehow I represent them mm -hmm. any more so than you would say that 
does you know does John Coltrane represent Miles Davis, or does you know Joe Henderson represent Wayne Shorter? Like no, you know Joe Henderson represents Joe Henderson. Mm-hmm. Sort of represents Ray Shorter. You know, does does Kendrick Lamar represent you know? Um, um, does he represent Jay Z? He's like no. Nah. He represents himself and, and Jay-Z represents himself. And so for me, it's, you know, I, I look at people connect. I look at like music, it's like a journey though. It's like when you learn about, it's almost like history. You, want, you, you learn about one part of history and then you see its connection to another part of history. And it, it leads you to that. So same thing happened with me, you know, like I, when I was about 11 years old, I already got into Art Blakey, which got me into Wayne Shorter, which got me into Miles Davis was then got me into John Coltrane and Charlie Parker. And, and it's just like, you just kind of go on this journey. But each each musician is kind of their own destination, you know? So for me, I feel honored to be thought of in the in the, in the, in the same conversation as, as, those, as those musicians. Um, but I feel like those musicians are so great and so amazing and so powerful that there's no way that I can represent them all of them <laughs> you know it's like you know i mean it, it it would take years to have an understanding of any one of them so no one person can represent all of them you know so i, I look at it as an honor i look at it as, as, a, as a as a as a as a great gift that people are interested in hearing my music and 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 that, that people have an appreciation for what i do and that that my music can bring some joy to the world. You know, I feel like in the end, that's the best that any of us can do is to try to add something to the world, add, bring something here and give something to the rest of the world that that makes it a better place. Yeah. And I'm very thankful that I, that it, it feels like I'm kind of doing that. Um, but I don't, I don't feel a pressure to somehow hold up these great, amazing, brilliant musicians. I think they kind of can hold them. They can hold themselves up. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's amazing because the first time I saw you perform in Australia was at Woe Adelaide a few years ago. Um, and this year, Ezra Collective, this gorgeous group of like young, mostly black oh, men yeah. from the UK, performed on the same stage. And it was this incredibly joyful experience. And it kind of gave me flashbacks to your set at Woe Adelaide um, a few years ago. And it was just such a beautiful heartwarming moment because in Australia and and possibly around the world jazz music um can be a little bit you know or the jazz scene can be a tiny bit sterile a little bit um you know definitely not that black and so Mm -hmm. seeing these awesome young men just jumping on stage jumping around dancing and and doing their thing was such an enjoyable moment and really for me I I see this kind of movement in the last kind of 10 or so years of that yeah yeah absolutely I love Astro Collective um and I think that you know like like jazz music you know because it's it's you know as, as a music starts to span over a time of history, what can kind of happen to it is that, you know, there's there's two different sides to music. There's the artistry side of music, and then there's kind of like the, the musicology or like the school, the educational side of music. And sometimes that line can get blurred, you know, and I think that sometimes maybe jazz may have, to a degree, um, suffered from that distinction between like people who are, 
you know, pushing that artistry. And I, I think that's what you're feeling. I think that the artistry, the, the, the sense of like taking ownership of the music and, and, and making it their own. And they're not, people aren't just, you know, you know, there was a time I feel like in jazz where, you know, when you talk about someone being good at, you had to attach it to how they reminded you of someone else, you know? And, and that's not how you would do with any of the greats of jazz. You wouldn't go like, oh yeah, I love Miles Davis because he kind of sound like Dizzy Gillespie. It's like, no, nah, not why you, you know, you know, you wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say, oh, John Coltrane is dope. He kind of sound like Coleman Hawk. You know, you just that's just not that's just not what it is. I see. I think that there's a resurgence of a feeling of like self expression, and that's what music is about. It's about sharing our experiences with one another and connecting. That's right. Because I think people in in in, in reality are, are very communal, but we can be very isolated as well. You know, we have that duality to us, and so music kind of allows us to have both, you know, because I feel like when you, when you hear your favorite song, you know, you can hear, you're, you can hear a song of someone singing about, you know, the love of their life. You're not thinking about the love of their life. You're thinking about the love of your life. And like, so, so music allows you to share that idea. Like you can share the idea of being in love, you know, without, you know, without sharing the person. <laughs> share idea you know yeah it's amazing in these last kind of five or so five to ten years I have really kind of enjoyed that element and that aspect of what's coming out of jazz around the world around the world at the moment it is that you know people just doing the thing that they love because they love it you know and and it kind of evokes that these emotions in a different way for listeners you know what i mean for someone like myself who loves to listen to jazz music it is really exciting to be able to go to a show and feel like you know i can be there and it's fine and i can dance if i want or you know and that is yeah. you know, there's a resurgence of that and i feel that energy at the moment and it's really exciting yeah, it's not being isolated anymore. I think jazz is isolated for a long time. You have to go to a jazz-specific club to hear jazz. And jazz is kind of re-entering just the the scene in general. You know, you can go to any bar and, and you know, the same way you might hear R&B, hip-hop, and rock and roll, same place. And same festival. Well, why not throw jazz in there, too? You know, the festivals, yeah. And it's like it's that, that that myth that people don't understand it, that people don't like it, I think like it's, it's breaking down and people are you know, it's proven. It's like, you know, you go there and people hear it and it's like a different experience, you know, and and it's, it can work mm. right next to all the other styles of music. Absolutely. Um, this has been so much fun. Thank you for your insights and your time, Kamazi. But I do yeah, want to so ask good. one more question. I read, yeah, yeah. I read somewhere, maybe a few years ago now, two or three years ago, that you were working on a graphic novel. And last night I went on Google and was looking looking for it. Where can we <laughs> pre-order it? What's happening? What's happening with a graphic novel? I've been working on it a lot, actually, right now. I, was like, I have all this time, so I've been writing every day. Um, it's not out yet, but I'm really excited about it. It's really fun. It's like it's, it's almost like, you know, just writing. And it's like, it's like I get to watch my own little private movie in my head and I just kind of write down what I'm seeing. And it's like, I kind of get excited to like, could like to kind of dive into my little subconscious and see what's going to happen next. It's kind of, it's fun processes. You know, it's like, I'm like the first book that I've written in this kind of way. And it's, um, it's really fun actually. And it's, you know, it's the, the one, I guess, I guess the one, the one plus of, of, of being quarantined is that yeah, I have a lot of time to, mm -hmm. to write. 
Kamazi Washington, this has been a joy. Thank you so much for your time oh, you so and sharing all of your insights. Yeah. Kamazi Washington is a jack, jazz saxophonist and has worked with some of the greats, including Herbie Hancock, K-Dot Kendrick Lamar, and now the Michelle Obama as a creator of the score to her documentary, Becoming. It is available on Netflix. And I would certainly suggest you check it out as well as a book, the book, um, actually. I read it last year and enjoyed it a whole lot. I would definitely suggest jumping online and buying that album or, you know, streaming it or doing whatever it is that you do um, to find your music. It's really, really beautiful, but I would also very much suggest um, watching that documentary or reading that um, Michelle Obama book. It's so interesting and beautiful and devastating how um, different the presidential race was for this black family versus others, you know, even thinking about the way at the moment it would be to release a documentary like this or even work on a documentary like this at a time where in the United States their leadership is um, so <laughs> jarring, you know, and and so deeply non-compassionate it's it's a very you know conflicting and concerning you know thinking process I think I remember when I was watching the documentary I spent a lot of time crying because I just thought about the extra added layer of difficulty that you know a first lady who happens to be a black woman had to face you know she had to really shrink herself in many ways and and then of course she she did amazing things and, you know, not without legitimate criticism, of course, presidents of the United States of America, none of them have um, clean track records, but thinking about the ways in which they experienced that White House as um, a black family is, you know, it's very confronting and it's very jarring and um, that story that she has told from her perspective is is really amazing and accompanied by, of course, this beautiful, beautiful score Tali Faulkner, a.k.a. Vasilikov, is a creator of Umurangi Generation, a new independent video game that is out now. It is set in a cyberpunk future where you play a delivery person slash photographer in a place called Tauranga in Aotearoa. Uh, For those of us who are just about getting over all the fun things we can do in quarantine, all of the movies that we've watched, all of the video games that we've played, some new stuff is actually coming out and this is one of them. Tali, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think that's, I should should probably write down what you said there because it's a really good way of introducing myself. (laughs) I've usually just said, hey. (laughs) That's how you should market yourself. I know, you know. Things are not really coming out at the moment. You know, we've got some problems going on with the media out there and video games and whatever, but we're, we're doing it. We're out here. We're releasing things. We're dropping, dropping hits. Yeah, like one of the things I'm really interested to see through all of this, um, well, like, you know, like all of us living in Australia as well, is like what kind of like, you know, works of art are going to come out of like, you know, this whole COVID thing and also like the bushfires, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because I think like, you know, like, especially this COVID thing, it's really changed everything um, for everyone, hasn't it? Absolutely. Mm. It's really interesting. There's, you know, the type of art that people are making and also the type of, um, you know, some people are just pausing and reflecting and planning as well because it's such an intense time. But there's a lot of people making incredible stuff and, and you know, all of the conditions that were put in place, you know, three or four months ago about what we can do, what we should do, how you should make radio, how you should perform live has just all gone out the window because you can't do it that <laughs> way much. anymore. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm in the boat where, like, my dad even started a podcast. So, you know, <laughs> I <laughs> everyone's love, having a go, I guess. I love and respect it. I love and respect it. So yeah. tell me, did you finish making this game before um, all of this coronavirus pandemic stuff happened? Pretty much. Like, the, the idea with the game is I kind of got a lot of the inspiration for making it from the bushfires because, like, my mum, her house got completely destroyed by the um, fires up, you know, near, um, like, I'm near Byron Bay at the moment. And, um, you know, for me, it's, it's one of those things where it's really weird that, like, uh, well, it's not surprising, but, um, you know, the game, I think, touches a bit more on, uh, you know, how society ends up shifting when something like that happens. You know, like, how does the government respond? Treated people point the finger at and, and whatever, and it's kind of interesting that you know, it was a game based on the bushfires, but you know the same stuff ended happening with like COVID. You know, like the example is, um, you know, one of the things we're seeing on TV at the moment is, you know, ads where they won't uh, directly say COVID, but they'll you know say everything around it. You know, oh, now's a really good time to be together. So buy 25 gigs extra data or something like that. And it was like, for me, when I was, um, you know, when this bushfire thing was happening and I'd seen, you know, the destruction of it, you know, you, then you watch TV and there's that really shameless um, advertising tactic where it's, oh, we could have never planned for this, so, you know, buy this product. And it's just like, fuck you, you know. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know if I've built the language code is on the radio. I know, 100%. And it's really interesting how, um, you know, quickly certain things can shift, right? As you said, like when it comes to advertising and selling consumerism and capitalism, that is just going really, really fast. We, you know, they're very, very quickly shifting and manoeuvring and manipulating their whole concepts and brands to make it make sense now. But then there are some very important elements of society that are, in fact, not changing because they don't have the space or the capacity to do so. And so, the race is really quite unfair in many ways and it becomes even more heightened now. Well, I, I guess I should probably say what the game is. Yes. People probably hearing that probably went, what the hell is this about? And that was um, the next question. What's the story? <laughs> what happens? Yeah, yeah well, I guess, um, so the game's a photography game where you're sort of uh, you know, starving artists like a lot of us are. And the idea is that, you know, you're doing a side job where you go around this um, city and you deliver parcels and... The idea is that you sort of get given what's called a photo bounty, which is where it's a really loose description of something, say, like, seven birds, and there might be, like, 15 or 16 in a level. And it's up to you to sort of take a photo how you want. Um, and the idea around that was to sort of make it so that, like, you're not punished for creative, uh, because, like, I think a lot of time in games when sort of a creativity aspect comes into it, um, the game almost, like, conditions you to, to, to do it a certain way, which ends up making it not fun at all. Um, but, yeah, I guess the idea is that, like, um, like it takes place where I'm from. Um, I'm Nai Tarangi, um, Iwi, and it takes place in Tauranga. And the idea is that, like, it's sort of, like, accelerating a lot of stuff that's happened there, but also, you know, kind of where this sort of neoliberal system is eventually going to head. Um, and just looking at it where... Because you're a photographer, you're spending a lot of time looking at things and around trying to take those photos. It's a really good place to sort of uh, make it so that there's no like direct story where there's someone telling you this is what's happening. It's more like you have to figure it out yourself just by like seeing what's you know like what what's on ads or you know what is someone graffitied on a wall or what's happening contextually you know around you and things like that. Um, so I, I don't know if I should spoil anything because it, it seems to be that people like going in as, as blind as possible. <laughs> um, but it, it also seems to be that, like, 
people play the game and they think it's something and then it ends up flipping about halfway through and they um, experience something that they weren't expecting, but they, they really enjoy it. So, yeah. Um, maybe being more vague is better. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, however you want to market it is exactly where we're going. But in terms of um, this genre of game that includes photography, is that I'm not someone who plays too many games and if I do, they're kind of older ones that I played in my childhood. Is that like a a thing? Is it a popular thing? Um, The thing is, a lot of people are comparing this to Pokemon Snap and I think that's probably because that's probably one of the only photography (laughs) games people have played, you know? Um, I think it's probably just to do with the fact that, like, uh, you know, in games now, like, the cynical, like, marketing decision now is to put in a photo mode because people will share screenshots mm. of the game on, on Twitter and that. Um, but, like, in terms of, like, photography, like, the actual act of photography, there isn't many out there. Um, like, you can pretty much count them all on one hand, and they're all very, very niche. And in terms of, you know, this character that you play being a delivery worker, that is, you know, a world out there. <laughs> it, was, it was a little bit too real, to be honest with you, um, because if you're an artist who is, you know, a photographer or a musician or whatever, generally the, the you know, the job that you might do if particularly at the moment, right, because there's not that many cafes open and pubs and stuff like that, is to, to yeah. be a delivery worker. Was that a very intentional element of kind of the story and the world that you're shaping? Uh, it wasn't inten- like I didn't intend for COVID. I'm not the mastermind <laughs> who created that. But, um, <laughs> it, it, I, I mean, the idea is that, like, you know, I'm someone who's tried living off being an artist before, and, and, you know, I think a lot of other people have as well. And, you know, it's one of those things where, like, when I was just finishing my degree, you know, one of the professors came in with the 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 lesson or or whatever and he just said okay most of you aren't going to be able to live on this um this is what you need to do to be able to get by and we're like it just crushed a lot of people but i mean it's sad that that's kind of the reality we live in that like i guess um you know artists aren't really i guess uh supported by like you know government program or anything like that Uh, you know like the equivalent of you know hex debt or something so it's more like you know you have to sort of um created on the side mm. and like I, you know one of the things i remember doing a lot um when i was sort of first finding my sort of um with my stuff was kind of like um a lot of the time i felt like a, a lot of my good ideas i guess they would usually come when i was doing stuff completely unrelated to art it was like you know walking the dog or running on a treadmill or something it's like it just got my mind moving but like okay. i think the idea that you know like you really do hit on a point there that you know uh, a lot of artists at the moment, they are having to take these jobs at the moment because it's either people aren't buying or they're, you know, uh, just, just outsourcing or buying overseas or whatever, yeah. It's interesting because I think about, you know, even more broadly when it comes to being someone who makes video games and isn't part of a huge company where, you know, there's a few huge companies out there that have a lot of money and a lot of control of this industry. It's an industry that I've thought a little bit about, but not as much um, as different creative industries. As an independent video game developer, creator, person, what does that industry look like to you, to you and your, within your creative practice and, and how you get by and get around? So the thing I would say about video games as an industry or taking video games and, and taking them, you know, into sort of, interesting and weird spaces um 
the thing I'm kind of thinking of is it's like it's an inherently like millennial art form because like we all kind of grew up with it as just like a toy or whatever. But we also saw the sort of shift where it started to try and tackle you know ideas that were a little bit more um, you, you know like adult, I guess. Uh, like there's a game um, I can never say the name. I think it's called Senwa's Sacrifice, but it was a game where uh, you played the game. Uh, all the way through it, it uses the surround sound of your headphones or your whatever, and you'll hear voices in the back of your head through the whole game mm. because it's about that character, you know, having that form of, um, you know, mental illness. And it was a really interesting idea on how to sort of implement that. And I think, like, the thing I think about is, like, we're probably going to see a lot more of things like that that try to tackle, um, you know, more, I guess, uh, I guess, relevant issues like i don't really know how to, to say it but you know what i mean like yeah. starting to see that a lot more and i think like the only thing really stopping it at the moment is just like the stigma around it being you know um a bunch of pimply nerds in a, in a base kind of thing like and and i guess that's kind of sad that you know it's also sort of the reality that we're still sort of living in yeah it's interesting because video games are different to other creative forms and how you experience other creative forms, right? Because often, you know, when you're watching a film or you're listening to music or you're looking at visual art or whatever it might be, you're watching a performance, whatever it might be, um, you there is a dynamic of performer and audience, right? Whereas this is very much you're playing a character and essentially you, um, as a person who's playing the game, of course there are confines, there's a story or whatever it is that you need to engage in, but essentially... Essentially, you are the person who is engaging with and speculating what the future of this character's life is going to be, right, or what they do and what their next step is going to be. Um, And that is a really interesting creative space to work in. How did you find yourself there? Well, the thing I'm just thinking about when you're saying that was, like, one of the things this game was originally going to have was, like, after you finished the level and you earned all your money, it would just disappear in front of you on bills and rent and everything like that. And the thing about removing that was it just didn't fit with the tone, I guess, in a way, because, like, um, as, like you being an active participant of the game, a lot of players who played it went, I, I feel really hurt. You know, I've actually, mm. I'm feeling that pain of, you know, I did all this, this work and it's just gone before I can even see, see what it does. Um, and I think, like, you know, with, games, um, that idea that you are, like, you know, a participant in the story. Uh, I mean, it's it's interesting to, because, like, a lot of games at the moment, they're built around that idea of, you know, the dopamine hit or, like, the, um, you know, reward players and, and, and make them feel like they're the best thing ever. Um, I think it's it's really interesting that, like, I think we're going to eventually start to see um, the games that try and make you feel a certain way that you might not have actually been through. Um, like, for example... Um, a lot of players after playing this game, they're saying, oh, wow, I felt like it was really occupied space or, or you know what I mean? I felt like, you know, I shouldn't, you know, do certain things because it, it, it made me um, feel certain ways and, and whatnot. Yeah. And so I, I think, like, there's huge potential in there as, like, an artist because you're not just, like, getting people to feel something by looking at it or listening to it. It's, like, getting people to feel by what they're actions are and things right. like that. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the the big kind of question about it and the big, you know, maybe scary aspect and maybe even flaw about it is that people 
have um, the capacity, you know, the competition that happens between these type of games. So something like what you've done and what other people have done that really put you in a moment and make you want to think. Um, you're also part of this landscape where the quick kind of dopamine hit um, is also around and people can just switch switch it off if they don't want to think. And it just seems to me that for a lot of people in society that, you know, for instance, if you want people to think about climate change, if you want people to think about mental health or whatever, um, there's so many other forms of media or creativity out there that, um, you know, they have the option to engage with. And that is probably the, you know, what I'm thinking about when it comes to the game, gaming industry and whatever, that's probably the type of um, conflict and the scary, scary part of that. Yeah, I mean, the, the big fear I think a lot of people kind of have with trying to make these sort of um, artistic statements is that, like, especially it's one where it starts to confront you. Mm. Um, you know, I can think of a game that came out pretty recently. It was a game where you sort of go through a pandemic. Um, now, that's... <laughs> what this was not out before this was out before COVID. Sorry, not a thing where they try to cash in with that. But the idea was that in that game, um, the the player that you you inhabit, um, they have like you know a hunger and a you know water meter. And the idea is that by day two or three, you're starving. Mm. And a lot of people they just turn that off and they said, I can't do this. It's too hard. Yeah. But it's like, well, that was kind of the point. Was that you know in these a lot of these um, you know pandemics and stuff, one of the first things to go is you know food supply and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Even just thinking about, you know, your game and thinking about, you know, if people, if you did include that element of um, you do all this work and then suddenly all your money is gone, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, you know, people, that would be frustrating, but that's a reality of so many people's lives yeah. instantly. Yeah, exactly. And you can't just switch that off in real life, unfortunately. I think I remember seeing, a, I think it was a tweet or something from, uh, you know, the Dune Rats, obviously. Um, the Dune Rats said something to the effect of like, oh, hey, it's like we've been making music and we've been kind of successful for a couple of years now. And today we finally received a check from like Spotify or something like that because, you know, the reality is even when you go on these platforms, they suck a lot of that away as well, don't they? Absolutely. Um, you, don't, you don't see it for, for, for years, yeah. So how has the reception been for the game? I know there's been actually a lot of love. There's lots of articles and videos <laughs> and things. What have people been saying? Yeah, I think that's been a really strong critical reception. Uh, like, people are getting the artistic message. And, like, me as an Indigenous person, um, you know, I wrote this with, you know, my family, obviously, in mind and stuff like that. But, you know, one of the things I wanted to do with this was also give it sort of a layered approach where, um, you know, if you didn't want to engage with sort of the themes and stuff of the game, you could just take it as, you know, the very basic story that it is. Um, but, you know, if you're, say, an Indigenous person and you live in a space like this, there are stuff that, um, you know, is relevant to us as well. And it's like putting that all together in a space where it's, um, you know, layered in in that idea that, you know, like uh, someone who's not Indigenous can still walk away from the game with an experience that uh, sits with them and resonates with them. Um, I think that's one of the reasons a lot of people are, are um, enjoying the game because, like, I think as well, uh, you know, as, as there has been that sort of push to, to make games into art, people are trying sort of with old ways, which is, um, you, you know, you watch a movie, maybe like, you know, a Michael Moore documentary or something, and the movie will expect you to walk away with the same conclusion. Mm. Um, I think with games and a lot of the nuance that you can do with players interacting with stuff, um, you can sort of get players positioned in a way where, you give them a lot of the context and things like that, but what they walk away with 
um, can be something that is really based on who they are, uh, if that makes sense. Absolutely. But like, you know, one of the things, you know, I was talking to someone yesterday about this was that, you know, I didn't design this game around COVID at all. You know, I replayed it as well the other day, and I went, "Oh wow, yeah, this is <laughs> this is kind of relevant." Okay, um, yeah. So, so I mean, it's been a pretty positive reception so far. Uh, mainly been seeing sales from the states and stuff like that. Um, but you know, I think as word begins to spread about it, um, you know, we'll start to see similar stuff all around. Yeah. yeah. It's very exciting. And so, how do people play this game? What is what device do you need? What you know? What is it? How do they do it? Uh, so you'll need a computer that's not, like, crap, I guess. Like, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> like you'll need something with a bit of a graphics split. But uh, the, the idea is later in the year we'll be putting it on consoles. So if you have, like, any of the main three, just you can probably wait till then. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and I guess the only, the last kind of thing that I want to ask you about this game is what do you want? You know, you said that you people can have whatever they get, whatever they want out of it, and they experience whatever they want out of it. What was your original intention when you started when you started making it? What were you thinking? So, the original original intention mm-hmm. was um, my little cousin. He was, um, but getting to an age, I think, where you're starting to figure out who you are, and that, and you know, it's getting a bit grumpy sometimes. And so, what I did is I took him out and him how to use my DSLR camera and I think the idea with that was like you know I sort of showed him how to do it and I was kind of explaining it to him you know using video game language you know this is what you do here and, and whatever and I think that kind of influenced the idea that mm. this game um, you know you unlock stuff slowly like you know lenses and, and color corrections and stuff like that and the idea is to sort of ease players who have you know never done any photography and ease them into, like, by the end of the game, they will be kind of built into a position where that they can, you know, take that and, and, and take it outside of the game, if that makes sense. And I've already started to see that come through, so it's, it's good to know that happened as well. Um, in terms of, like, the thematic stuff, yeah, definitely based on these bushfires and just how um, we saw, I guess, like, you know, smoke filling the sky became this very normal thing and people were no longer wearing masks outside or, you know, it wasn't people talking about the fact that the air was pretty much unbreathable and stuff. And, you know, a lot of the other stuff that sort of came out of just, you know, how we were all kind of feeling at that time. Um, I I think everyone was sort of a little bit fed up with, you know, ScoMo's response. And um, a, a lot of that energy just in there, but not directly, like not, might be over the head kind of stuff. It's more just about, you know, what would that look like if you were in a different kind of occupied space? Yeah. Yeah. It sounds incredible. I'm very, very excited to find my non-crappy computer in my house (laughs) and actually properly start playing. I jumped in for a moment and then I was a little bit overwhelmed. But I feel like now I'm ready. I've watched enough YouTube videos of other people playing, which is a theme of enjoyment that I didn't really know was a thing until a few days ago, which is amazing. Um, But it sounds really, really awesome. Tali, thank you so much for the chat. Yeah, thanks heaps. And um, Adam as well, because I didn't know this radio station exists, but you guys have great music. We're here. We do it. We exist. (laughs) We've got good music. We do what we can. (laughs) Thanks so much, Tali. All right. Bye. Bye.
Hey, big, big thanks to all of my guests today. I spoke with Tali Faulkner, a.k.a. Vazelikov, who's a creator of Umurangi Generation, a new independent video game that is out now. Um, it is set in a cyberpunk future where you play a delivery person slash photographer in a place called Tauranga in Aotearoa. It is very, very um, creative. It is very, very thoughtful. And actually chatting with Tali was really awesome because... It just gave me an interesting insight into how video games are made, but also video games as a creative medium that really allows the person who is experiencing it, the participant, the player, to very much immerse themselves in that experience. The game looks at neoliberalism, it looks at the environment, it looks at um, land and land rights. It is very, very thoughtful. You can jump online and play it on the PC. You could also wait a few months and, you know, it'll arrive on all the consoles. But I would also just suggest watching videos of people playing it, which is what I did, and it was very, very enjoyable. If you're into photography or not, it's absolutely fine. And, of course, big, big thanks to Kamasi Washington for coming on the show, taking the time and chatting through some pretty intense topics that we went through. It was really enjoyable to hear his insights. Of course, jump online, check out the album, check out the score, check out the documentary for Michelle Obama's um, story and also the book if you're interested. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.